This is Infidel One. Offending Coyote Down. Offending Coyote Down. Roger that. Welcome to Trappin' Radio. We're proud, organic, free-range, wild fur farmers of North America. Let me tell you a little story about how I was raised. Every day work, every day pray. God, family, friends, yeah, everybody sins. A winner never quits, and a quitter never wins. Help folks in need, don't fall for greed. A jealous man is weak, so think before you speak. If you love them, let them know. If you hate, let it go. Fast can be fun, but sometimes you need slow. God is all good, the devil is so real. So listen up, y'all, because this is how I feel. I won't back up, I don't back down I've been raised up to stand my ground Take my job, but not my guns Tax my check till I ain't got none Except for the good Lord of above I answer to no one Now let's cover our sponsors. They do a lot to help support Trapping Radio. So I'm asking you guys out there and gals, to help support our sponsors as they keep trapping radio on the air. First sponsors, Oki Cable and Trap Supply. Jeb's the owner of this. He's out of Oklahoma, super guy. You'll not meet anybody nicer. It's somebody you're gonna wanna deal with. You can reach him at OKTrapSupply.com. You can give Jeb a call at 918-429-4648. Not only does he do trap supply guys, he's a fur buyer, so if you're around the Oklahoma or surrounding states, give him a call with your fur. When you need stuff, give him a call and he'll get it out to you as soon as he can. Our second sponsor is F&T Fur Harvesters Trading Post. Everything you need for trapping, hunting with hounds, and predator calling. Guys, if you're into trapping fur, hunting fur, chasing fur with dogs, you're not gonna be able to think of hardly anything that you can't get from F&T. You can reach them at fntpost.com. You can also give them a call at 989-727-8727. Whatever you want, F&T's got it. Wildlife Control Supplies. Proven solutions for wildlife control. Delivering value, expertise, and products to the wildlife individual. If you're in the ADC business, control business, even fur trapping, you need to look at these guys' website. Top-notch company, have everything you would want, even the odd stuff that ADC guys are looking for. You can reach them at wildlifecontrolsupplies.com. You can give them a call at 877-684-7262. International number is 860-844-0101. If you're a wildlife control professional, you need to have wildlife control supplies as one of your favorites on your computer or your phone because when you come across something that you need specialized equipment, Alan will get it right out to you. Now let's go traffic. Toting son of a gun, yeah, I'm hell on the heart, just a rebel on the run. Scared, don't know it, fear, don't feel it. The truth is the light, sometimes you gotta fight. Good beats bad, right beats wrong. I'm a ballroom preacher and this is my song. I'm climbing for the top, representing for the country. I'm the people's champ, right out to dead camp. Shotgun toter, Republican voter, Hank Jr. supporter, let's protect our border. 
to hell with anyone who don't believe in the USA. Cause this is what I say. I won't back up. I don't back down. I've been raised up to stand my ground. Take my job, but not my Welcome to Trapping Across America, home of the organic, free-range, wild fur farmers of, uh, of the world, I guess you could say, because we actually have several listeners that are not in the uh, continental or the Alaska in 48. We have listeners in Israel and Australia, England, uh, parts of Europe, South America. I'm, I'm amazed sometimes when I get some of these letters, just how far something like this can... Uh, can go but i mean i just want to welcome everybody if you've never listened to this show before we talk about trapping stuff related to trapping um not so much always just techniques to trapping but just different ways that a uh, trapper can be a better trapper sometimes a better person sometimes a happier trapper and uh, an outdoorsman just enjoys going out there and being part with nature instead of looking at nature through the, the prism of it's like a wildlife show that you're supposed to be off in the distance seeing through binoculars. You know, most trappers that I know want to be in the middle of it and not looking at it from a distance. I do want to start the show tonight on something. Guys, I knew I was going to get some, some uh, pretty he heavy negative feedback when I talked about the economy last week. And I did. And I knew that was going to happen. And that, that's I'm fine with that. And you'll find out something about me pretty seriously. If you challenge my way of thinking, it does. I do not see that as attack, even though in what I'm getting to read, I do not believe is an attack in any way. But a lot of times, if someone challenges somebody's belief, the other the person that's being challenged on their belief goes in defensive mode, and I'm just not really that way. If because to me, if, if I'm looking at something in a wrong point of view, I want to know about it. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to dig my heels in. I'll listen to all kinds of stuff. I've listened to podcasts from, uh, anti rights activists and the, the, the crazy blue, purple hippie environmentalist and, and all kind of stuff because to me, for one, I want to know what they're thinking and try to figure out why they're thinking it. And second, if there's something I'm missing and they're seeing, I want to know about it because uh, I just think you're you're a, a better, more well-rounded, and and a more self-educated person if you look outside your comfort zone for information. And when I talked about the economy last week, um, I knew there would be a lot of stuff, guys. I'm telling you. I'm not going to probably agree with a lot of you on on politics. Uh, I'm I'm just not, and it, it's it's not an attack on your politics. What I was referring to last week is don't waste your energy fighting for a political party. And I'm going to read a, an email that I've gotten. I'm not going to mention his name, and like I said, this is not an. Uh, or whatever but I, I do want to explain some things because I, I do believe it's very easy to to wrap the American flag with emotion around a subject and it makes it very hard to logically think about and um, 
And it's easy to mix things up when you're looking at a topic because there's certain things that make you want to automatically it's revert to wrapping the flag in something. And before I read this email, I ha it, it has become clear to me. And if I'm wrong on this, I apologize and I'll man up to this one day. But right now, I, I just I just don't think I am. When people talk about America and the American people and the real American dream, not the one about the picket fence and the 2.5 kids, but the, the actual American dream of you can do whatever you want to do, whether it be live under a bridge, start a business, you know, go live in the mountains, be a trapper, not be a trapper, be a hunter, not be a hunter, grow your own food, don't grow your own food, do whatever. To me, that the, the freedom part of that is the American dream. That is important. That is real America. Washington, D.C. is not real America. The, the, what goes on in Washington, D.C. in the last 20 years has nothing to do with America. It has nothing to do with American history. And it has nothing to do with why we are free today of what goes on up there right now. There, there's, you, you have to separate America, which is me, you, your neighbor, and politics. Because if you if you if you don't take your if you get where you take the you don't wrap the flag around arguments at the beginning and you think about them logically and through the thought process, except for a few times in history, wars would have never happened if it wasn't for politicians. And if they couldn't get the people to follow them, their own interest, the politician's interest would not be, would not be met. And there wouldn't be wars. And I'm not talking about anything. Uh, I'm talking all the way back through history. You can go all the way back to the Crusades in the Middle, in the, the middle Ages. If you really look at the history and why stuff was done, it was because politicians wanted what other people had. And they rallied their people back at that time more through force than through, uh, you know, getting them excited about something. And they went out and they went to war and they took it. And then they wrapped it through their own version of the flag and, and patriotism and for the motherland and the homeland and, you know, all that type stuff got put on there at the beginning and in the middle. But it was never hardly ever about that. Um, it, it's it's just a fact of life you know if we didn't have politicians there'd be very few wars even in the Middle East if if people didn't believe in the scarcity mindset there would hardly be any wars I mean if you want to talk about what it means to be civilized that's when you start thinking about concepts like that and I know that's completely off the rail of trapping but if you didn't hear it last week I basically said that your vote through the through the way that our voting system is right now through dichotomy where you have a right and a left and the right and the left argue that each other those 
cross those out. Guys, that is a mathematical formula. There's no emotion in that. If one votes for Republican and one votes for Democrat, neither one of those votes matter in the end because it is a net zero. It's not fair to the person that's making the vote. It's not fair for somebody that busts their hump at their job and gets crossed out by somebody that has no clue about who they're voting for. But that's just the way it is. There's no way to get around that. It's a net zero. Not saying it doesn't vote or a person doesn't matter. It's taking that argument in a way that it was not intended and was it was is was not said. I'm just saying in a in a form of dichotomy that we live in in our politics today and in most subjects that most people talk about the people that are in charge know that if they have you mad at another group, you're never going to look at them and ask the right questions. And I'll give you an example. Dichotomy alert, guys. There was a thing just on Fox News where the airlines are making their seats smaller and shorter. And let me tell you, for a 300-pound, two guy, that does not make me happy. I don't fly very often, but it's very uncomfortable before, so it's going to be very uncomfortable now. So what did the conservatives on Fox News end the story with? But the illegal aliens get to fly back on jets and they're only 40 to 60% full. So a lot of the illegal aliens have whole rows of seats to sit in and they're comfortable and you, the Americans, are not comfortable. Guys, that is dichotomy in a very simple form. The reason that you're uncomfortable on a plane seat don't get mad at the people that own the plane. Don't get mad at the people that write the regulations on the plane. Get mad about the illegals that are getting sent back. That has nothing to do with a corporate American company cutting down the seats. It's the illegals' fault. Be mad at the illegals. That's dichotomy. You don't start asking the right questions. You don't start thinking of things in a logical way. You automatically take a story, throw in a bad guy, which is now the illegals on this particular one. They have more leg room than you, so you should therefore be mad at the illegals because you're cramped in a commercial airplane in America. That is insane when you look at it that way. But that's the way that almost all political arguments are made. If, you're, if you lost your job, it's those freaking Chinese. If you're not getting higher raises, it's because of those greedy corporate people. If you're, if you're overweight, it's McDonald's fault. If you want higher minimum wage and higher uh, jobs, it's Walmart's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. But if you noticed in this world of dichotomy in our politics, it's never, ever the politician's fault. It's never the government's fault. It's always another person inside of our country or a group inside of our country and we're constantly being pitted against each other so we never really sit back and ask the right questions where our votes would matter and then individuals would matter. Now I'm going to read this email. Like I said, I do not think that I'm not going to read the name. And uh, if you're the one that wrote this, you're going to know it. I know you listen to the show a lot. So... Uh, I'm not attacking you, so there's no reason to be defensive, and I do not believe you is attacking, were attacking me, so I'm not being defensive. 
But it says, Clint, I was traveling between my shops today listening to Trapping Radio number 150. I was blown away by you saying that your boat doesn't count. I believe mine does. I almost agree and think as you do. I think you are making a big mistake saying to people that respect you and like you, I'm fed up. And it says, I'm fed up with the Republicans and the Demo Demopublicans <laughs> as you are. Also, do not believe in arguing about politics and other subjects to people. I'm glad that our founding fathers and our World War II vets did not take your attitude on one vote or one actually could not make a difference. I've always voted, never missed election. If for no other reason, 16 million people went to war to defend my right to vote. My very own grandpa spilled blood in Iwo Jima to keep that right for me. I'm not sending this to start a, a uh, pissing contest with you. I hope you We'll think about these 16 million Americans that went off to World War II and thought about and thought they personally could make a difference. If no other reason, we should go to the polls and show respect for them. Okay, this is where emotion and logic gets kind of squirrely. Um, I'm saying your vote doesn't matter in a dichotomy system because it one side just cancels out the other and pretty much if you and it's just it's statistics guys it's math that's all it is and you have a fringe element and most of the fringe element doesn't know even who's running for vice president or who their congressman or senator are or whatever if you don't think so all the people that were on on the phones you know screaming and hollering about their Obama phone being so great that's canceling out votes so if you happen to be the one that votes and they were the ones voting on the other side it's a net zero when you when you put in I mean it's obvious from this he's calling them Republicans, which is a cross between Democrat and Republican and a demo Republicans which are basically Democrats you see that you see that there's nothing there but when you when you're voting for one of those other two people you're giving them permission to continue on with what they're doing and it's under the illusion that they represent you guys your politician does not represent you they haven't represented American people in a long long time and I know that's frustrating and it gets you mad and you want to feel like you can do something and there's a lot you can do but it's it's not going to be done through a voting booth at least not on a national level on a state level yes on a county level absolutely in your city yep you you can get in and actually be a little bit more involved with that because it's on a local level and not the way that it is on a federal level you see that there's really no difference between the two, but you're going to vote for it anyway. So you're giving them permission to do the same thing. They they get to use those numbers. They don't know who you are, but they get to use those numbers as affirming that they're right in what they're doing because you're giving permission to them. And you have the counseling out thing. Now, when you talk about the founding father, I'm a combat vet. If I go to Arlington, you will see a six foot two, 300 pound man cry. I can't help it. The sacrifice that those people made going into battle for their country is way more than I can even fathom. 
and I'm a combat veteran. But that has nothing to do with voting. And I can tell you as a combat veteran, you do not go to war so someone can vote at home. Now you may be able to have a long tail way of getting back to that and freedom and everything else. I never once heard in the in the 101st Airborne Infantry Division nor in the 6th Infantry Division that that was the talk of why people joined the army so people could vote or that's why we went to the Middle East or people going to the Middle East now is so Americans can vote. That's not the reason you do that. You do it because you want to protect what you love, which is back home. And yes, voting is part of that. Voting is, a, is an amazing thing. The system that the voting is now in has perverted that. And it's very clear if you do that. Now saying, you, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm sure I'll vote. And there's a couple of guys that I think would be pretty decent. And if, you, and if you've been listening to the show, you can probably guess who they were. Be much better than it was, but it's still going to be mostly the same thing because that is the system that's running in government. I heard an example one time that uh, you, can't, you can't force a system to do what you want it to do just because you want it to do it. And this was from Jack Spirico of the Survival Podcast. When he, he says, if you, if you were to break through a door of an airplane and you could talk to the pilot and go, you know, I know that you're supposed to go to Florida, but I want to go to California. He's going to say, we can't do that. And you're going to go, well, you can fly the plane to California. He said, yeah, but we're going to have military on us because they're going to think we're terrorists and we're probably going to get shot down and we don't have the fuel for it to get there anyway and all these other passengers are trying to get to Florida so we're going to Florida. Now you could kind of sway that one a little bit one way or the other. Now if you wanted to tell the airplane pilot that you wanted to take that plane under the ocean and use it as a submarine, the systems of that plane will not allow you to take it underwater and fly underwater because you want it to or you think that you should be able to because that's not the system in place. The system in place is dichotomy, where one American is always mad at another American for some reason. Black people are, are mad with businesses, and most of the time business owners, and Republicans, and the mean white people. Well, if you look logically at the whole thing, the only reason that we had to have a civil rights movement in this country was because of laws passed by the government. The government was the problem. But black people don't even know that because it's the mean white guy. So you're not so they're not asking the right questions. They're not asking the right questions on who was the Klan. It's the mean white guy. No, they were Democrats. They're not asking the right questions on who signed the, the legislation on that. When the President of the United States said, we, and if you've got children, close their ears, because this is what I'm going to give you is a quote, and it's going to offend some people. You can look this up in the Congressional Library. You can do it online. The first thing that was said after the civil rights was put into place was we will own these niggers for 200 years. That's a president of the United States. 
because they knew that they would own them from that point on and anything and they could now pit them against white people forever which is what they're doing look at ferguson they're still doing it because of dichotomy now if black people as a whole would self-educate themselves because you're not going to get it in school would look at their history in America all the way back to the founding fathers to the the, the reason why there was a three-fifth clause not the liberal reason but the actual reason of that they would see that the mean white guy is not as mean as they thought they were and they were trying to figure out how to get out from under a system that was already in place when they were trying to set up the laws in this country the economy is a sneaky a little bastard that gets on gets in your head and gets you mad at everybody else the people that died in world war ii world war one vietnam korea all that that is a completely different subject than voting today if you mix the two up you're going to come out with a flawed way of looking at it. That has nothing to do. If you think that that remoral, that it, you're giving them respect by going voting, by all means, go and vote. Because I'm not saying go and vote. But if you want to really respect the veterans that died for this country, go out and do some epic stuff in your own life and make a difference in your own community. And then you as an individual will make a difference. If you start a business the way that I'm talking about, once the once this uh, the educational bubble pops and and the, all the free money going to forty billion dollars a, a month is going to Wall Street right now free of charge, and they still can't make them the economy grow, there's going to be another equalization like there was in two thousand eight, and it's probably not going to be a couple of years off. If you own your own business. And you can you can get some money saved back you're in the position to help somebody you're in the position to give jobs you're in the position to help your community you're in the position to give money to the NTA if they need to go fight something or, or North Carolina which we're getting ready to talk about here in a minute on body grip traps that's how you make a difference in the world of the economy the way it is now if your votes canceled out, it's still a zero. But confusing veterans that died for the country during World War II and Vietnam on what's going on right now, I, th I think you're confusing two totally different issues. Were they patriotic? Absolutely. Do they want voting? Would they have wanted voting to continue? Absolutely. Do you think that the greatest generation of World War II thinks that a, a, the new Republican or new Democrat, the ones that are still alive, is what they fought for? No. But if you keep giving them permission with your name on the ballot to do that, how are you honoring the people that died? That would be my question. But wrapping the flag around voting by using the vets to do that I, I just think you're confusing two totally different things 
But it, but me thinking that an individual can make a difference, absolutely. You can make a difference for good or bad. You can you can you can not do something or you can do something. Me sitting here right now doing this, talking about this subject, even though it's not exactly trapping, I'm putting ideas out there that hopefully somebody will at least think about. Not do it because Clint says to do it. For goodness sakes, don't ever do something just because I said to do it. But think about it. And if 20 or 30 people of those start thinking about it and they talk to friends and then other people, because trust me, I'm not the only one saying this. There are millions of people that are sick of the economy. The problem is most people are so busy in their everyday life and they, they, just, they just rush from thing to thing. They don't ever think about it. And then they let the news tell them what's important. They, they let the news tell them what's important to them and who's to blame all the time. But it's never the government. It's never the government. It may be the IRS, but that's not really the government. That's the IRS. Or it could be, you know, the, the FDA bringing in SWAT teams to Amish farms in flak vest with MP5s putting four-year-old kids on the ground with machine guns to their heads. But that's the FDA, not really just the government. But who passed the regulations to allow the FDA to do nonsense like that in America that World War II vets would go to war for if they saw that and they were able to do that? The politicians that we voted for as the lesser of two evils. That's how the FDA gets to do that. And the USDA has their own SWAT teams to do stuff like that. The, the, the World War II vets, I'm sure, just like our founding fathers, never envisioned that Obamacare would be written by insurance companies. Energy policies are written by lawyers of GE. The politicians don't even write the laws. Their lobbyist that pays them writes the laws and they sign it. That's the system that's in place right now. Now, to me, it's more patriotic not to be in the game and play the system that they want you to play and be a puppet that they want you to be where you just don't put, no, don't put any hope in them, don't put any faith in them. Build your life where you don't need them. <coughs> That's more patriotic to me than putting my hope in somebody that's going to let a lobbyist that's paying them. I mean, right now the scandals are on TV about Clinton and them taking all kind of money from foreign governments into their fund so it can influence her when she was State Department. There's going to be people vote for her. There's going to be people vote for her because she had her own servers and she knew their emails would get her in trouble. So she, she didn't even go through the law. I mean, we're not a nation of laws anymore. We're not a late, uh, we're not a nation where the politicians represent us because if it did, like I said, why the borders open? Because that's obviously what the people they're supposed to represent are telling them. Why do we have Obamacare when poll after poll shows that the people that they, that they supposedly represent don't want it? All of the crazy EPA stuff and all the, the regulations and, you know, it, there was a study done. Most people 
an average American every day commits 2.5 felonies a day because of all the rules and regulations these politicians have put in office. And my point was, don't waste your time arguing for the people that's making your life worse. Don't give them any of your energy. Don't give them any of your time. Don't, don't argue with people about it. Don't do anything like that. If you want to vote, vote. But that wasn't even the point that I said all that. The point was, don't waste your energy on doing that. Go out and do some epic stuff in your own life where you now, as an individual, do make a difference. And don't be so quick to wrap the flag in the American foam, America's number one finger on a subject until you think it all the way through. Especially by putting bets and stuff like that on there. Because it's... It's just not authentic and it's not real. It is, and, and I don't think that the gentleman that sent me this thought about that. that. That is what you're taught from grade school up. Your vote matters. And if your vote matters, you're going to fight for that vote to the point of you fight with your neighbors. And as long as you and your neighbors are fighting, whether it be a different group, a different state, a different race, a different income bracket, a different anything, as long as you're fighting with them, the people that want to do what they want to do are continuing to do what they're doing because no one is looking at them because everybody blames everybody else except the people that are causing the problem. And if you don't think that's true, you give me a problem right now in America that the government hasn't caused. One. Good luck with that. Good luck with that one. But the government in America, me and you, America, are not the same things. And please don't get those two confused. Because when you get those two confused, it's real easy to get Americans to do things and act, act certain ways and say certain things that are not congruent to the way the real America is, but the way the Washington, D.C. America is. And those are not the same. Okay, we're going to get off that subject. But uh, I had several emails that were uh, some pretty rough. And uh, like I said, I don't take them personally on that. I know I've got some crazy ideas and some different ways of looking at things. But I'm always looking at it, looking for the absolute dead nuts bottom truth of something and not just what is common common said or knowledge or anything like that. And when you start looking at the world that way, you start asking some, some different questions and you start coming up with some different answers. Okay, I'm gonna go over a few questions real quick. Uh, these two are pretty much gonna have the same answer. And uh, says, uh, I'm mainly a raccoon trapper and I'm interested in some of Norm Blackwell's multi-coon cage traps how much are they and where can i get one okay the next question this was just from this morning guys how much how much are the portable pockets selling for i'm getting long line cooning and looking for them to use on river banks that don't allow for digging pockets i need around 50 uh i need around 60 to 80 of them um well guys i i don't sell 
the multi-coon cages and I don't sell the portable pockets. I use them in my own thing. I've showed them in videos. I've got the portable pocket DVD out where I'm showing how to catch everything from muskrats to cats with them, but I don't make them. So if you're looking for those products, you're going to be better off calling Norm himself and his number is 706-264-6277. And it, you'll, there's nothing I can do with you about that. Now the other question I find is very interesting. Um, hey Clint, since I don't know, see I don't know how about, uh, see how can I read it, since I don't know, well I'm not even going to read that. I have four pounds of fresh frozen caster that I bought from a trapper in Minnesota. I have now changed my mind about doing anything with them and want to sell them. Do I, do I price it based on dry caster or on it being frozen? I've been told that a, a fresh four pounds of caster will dry to about half or two pounds dry. I'm trying to find out how beaver caster is sold based on fresh or wet or dry and prices one sees is based on is the prices one sees based on wet or dry and this is from steve uh steve the beaver caster is a very confusing thing when it comes to knowing how and where and why to sell them when you see the prices for the most part unless you're talking to a dealer uh, a lure maker like me uh, some of the deer industry uses caster in their lures and things like that. Most of the time, we're going to be talking about wet. And those prices are not going to be anywhere near what you see like at Napa or, or uh, fur harvesters or, or something like that. Most of the caster that's being bought at those auctions are not having anything to do with animal lure usage or anything like that. It's for the perfume trade. It's also for a lot of the food trade. And they're dried because of storage issues. And when you see a price, say $40 for caster at NAFA, that's going to be dried and that's going to be number one grade caster. That's going to be big, full caster sacks that are going to be number one and then they go down from there you've got twos and threes and fours and and uh, there's probably some different grades in there i've never really played that much with that market so i mean being a lure maker i'm not selling my caster so uh, i'm not doing it but i do know it's sold dry there's different grades of them and when and it's just like everything else when you see anything at an auction they're not going to really tell you the average price because sometimes the average price is not as cool as the the top end number one really full northern caster type stuff but if you if you've got 4 pounds of caster it really doesn't dry to half it dries uh you don't lose half really but you do lose uh, quite a bit so you're going to be somewhere between I don't know probably two and a half pounds of, of dried caster and you can sell it that way if someone wants it that way now from a, a lure maker's point of view 
when I get dried caster, there are different formulas and that's why you need to find out who you want to sell it to before you do anything with it. There are some formulas, especially some of the older formulas that I'm sure some people are still using, where they over dry caster. So when they get it from you, they let it dry even more. And then they actually shave it off almost like with a rasp. And then they put it into a lure formula that way. And uh, you can see there, I know there's one guy that still does that um, in some of his lures. And it looks like uh, snuff in the bottom of the, the lure. And most of the time it's more of a liquid mixture and you, you, you stir it up as you use it. There's not a lot of lure makers that's gonna do that. From a lure maker's point of view, when you're talking about caster, if you give me drive caster, we're gonna talk about this from the lure maker's point of view here so you understand why there is a difference and why it's gonna be up to you to find your market before you do something with your caster. <coughs> if you give me four pounds of caster that's dried, <coughs> I'm now gonna to have to take that caster and mix it with alcohol, which is mostly what's used. And then I'm gonna to have to soften that caster back up into that process. So now I've got labor and I've got material cost for the same base product of green caster. There is a little bit of odor difference when you do that, it's not much. And some guys will have lure formula, especially guys that have bought lure formulas from other people, and they will want it that way because that's the way that the guy did it in the 1960s or 70s. So they'll get dry caster, they'll have to take the time to re-soak them, and then grind them, and they don't grind exactly the same after you do that, and then you'll have to drain off that alcohol and all that. So you've got alcohol cost and labor to do that. So if you're selling to a lure maker, dried caster prices can kind of be a gauge just to see if they're if they're really high or really low or somewhere in the middle. But it's not gonna be, you know, you're not gonna get if if dried caster's forty dollars for in Napa, you can pretty much look at okay, green caster is gonna be somewhere around half that when you sell it to a dealer. And that's normally what I pay for caster or trade for caster. I'll trade for twenty-five, and I'll pay, and I'll pay twenty dollars if I need caster. And then that's a realistic value to a lure maker to do that. Now, to a perfume company, that's a different aspect. Now you're dealing with something that they they only have really one place to go get it, and in the food service too. There's a lot of that that's used in the food service, and they're used to dried caster when they when they go about doing that and and knowing on the food side the dried actually makes more sense perfume side i really don't know but that's the way that they go about doing that so if you're gonna if you're gonna dry them and send them to napa you will get more money per ounce that's dried but you're not really going to make that much more money and in, in the way of the way people talk about their prices now, people want the highest price, even though whatever. To me, from, from a trapper's point of view, if you've got somebody that'll buy it green, you're better off to sell it green. Because you don't have any labor cost or, or labor time. And, and every, you only have so many footsteps in a day. And you're, you, know, you start drying it out and you get warm weather and it gets real humid. 
and it starts molding and now you got to deal with that and different things like that or you got to build a box almost like a dehydrator to keep it where it's working good because if you send castor up to napa that's got mold on it it's going to get downgraded immediately and then you're going to have what is dry enough you know that's also going to have to do with the grade that it goes into dried castor is not like hard shells like uh, i've seen people do it where it's i mean it's like a rock it's drier on the outside and it still has a little bit of movement on the inside and it's really concentrated at that point but from a trapper's point of view if you're catching beaver you're better off just to throw it in a bag put it in a freezer and then later on if someone comes up to you and, and, and you find a market that wants it dried then you can dry it but if you dry it during the beginning of as you're catching it you're kind of stuck on what you can do with it it's kind of like going to a fur sale with with green fur you're kind of stuck at what you're going to get because you're taking a chance if you bring if it if your your fur's dried and thawed out and you take it somewhere and it sits in a heated room all day and people are pulling and everything on it you can take it back but you're going to have slippage on some of that fur when you try to refreeze it and thaw it back out because you're probably if you've got any volume you're not going to be able to put it up quick enough so it limits you on what you can do so the biggest biggest thing on that question really is what is your who are you selling it to? Because what and and that that that's just a base principle of anything in business. You got to know who your customer is before you know what to do with the product. So it, it's going to be totally up to you. Um, I kind of it seems like it's about half really of the price of what you see at Napa. Is a lot of times what lure makers will give it to you. And then you got a lot of guys that you may find online or, or maybe eBay, heck, I don't know, something like that. May give you more, but you're probably not going to be able to move very much of it that way because you just have somebody that wants it. And, uh, you know, one thing that the trappers ought to be doing is contacting some of the, the people that make deer and hog and all kind of weird scents and see if they're looking for caster. Because I've had calls from guys that are, are big time uh lure makers i mean the stuff you see at cabela's and stuff like that and they're looking for 55 gallons of caster on a process that they do with one of the lures that's really popular in the stores and it's been that way for a long time and they have a hard time finding that and i bet with those guys at the price that they sell that stuff for you may be if you can get an end even if you had to be like the middleman for a bunch of other people you could probably get more for the caster than you could from a lure maker or even from NAFA by finding the right market. But the market, who you're selling to, that, that's going to be the end user of what it is. And for a trapper, to me, greens just makes better sense. Unless you're going to send it to NAFA. You know, and with the, the, the fur market, the way it's going, depending on if you need the money or you just want to get rid of it or whatever, if beaver prices stay down for two or three years, caster goes crazy high. And that's a good time to sell it to NAFA. If beaver prices are, are creeping up and a lot more people are trapping beaver, then the market goes in the opposite direction because the supply gets really easy for people to get it and they start spending less money because they know they can get it for cheaper. 
So on a down fur market, caster's always going to be worth more. And on an up fur market, caster's going to be worth less as long as the volume is there at the auction. So if you have the freezer space and you're looking at ultimate profit in what you're doing, which I think all trappers should do, during high fur years, if you can afford to, and you could just put that stuff up, you're taking a little bit of risk on a freezer going down or something like that, but you could probably get 30 to 40 to 50% more on that product if you, if you roll with the spikes in the market. And when you roll with the spikes in the market, let me give you a little bit of advice. Don't try to hit the very tippy top. If you do, most of the time you're going to get burnt because there, there becomes a time where caster gets high enough that people start trapping beaver for caster. Supply goes up, price goes down. So if, you're, if it's normally $35 at NAFA and you set your price, you want to get 50 or 55, when it hits up to that point, you sell it. Don't try to wait till it gets 59 or 62 because you're, now you're up in your wrist to the point where you're probably going to get burnt more times than you win. That's my opinion on that anyway. But that's a very interesting question because a lot of guys, they don't really, uh, because they don't understand how all that stuff works. And you get on a form or something and people dry and caster and some are sending it to, to Napa and, and this and that. It gets very confusing. I understand that. But just know where your market is, know where that's where it's going, and, and everything will be uh, pretty cool with it. Now, one thing I do want to talk about, and, and I'm not sure what anybody in the audience can do about it. If you're in North Carolina, this is where an individual can make a difference because it's a state issue. And hopefully, the USDA is not on the back end of this pushing this with their, the beaver industry, which they very well could be. Um, if you go to nctrapping.org and go to their legislation place, North Carolina has always had fairly liberal body grip traps on dry land. You can use a 220 on dry land because of otter and coon and stuff like that, and it's always been, you know, fairly well. We can't do that in Tennessee. I can't even set a 110 on dry ground here. Don't know why, but that's just the way it is. But on their legislation page, they have, if the bill, there's a, a bill in Senate right now, and it's Bill 647, and it was by Senators Sanders and Jackson. If they're your Senators, on a smaller scale like that, if, if trappers and outdoorsmen would raise enough cane they can usually stop something like this but if this was at, at, at congress and senate in washington dc nobody would care but these guys know that they can get fired a lot easier than they can up in the, in the federal part of the world so they pay a little bit better attention and you can do something and a lot of times bills like this are based on ignorance but the bill that passed would restrict the use of body grip traps on land the following is a link to the General Assembly website. You can open the latest version of the bill. I did that, and I really can't follow exactly what it is. It's, it's, uh, I can't get the details of what they're doing. I've heard that they're not even going to allow you to have it half in, half out of the water, and that could be a rumor, and that, that would be a pain for beaver trappers, which makes me wonder if the USDA behind closed doors is kind of pushing this because 
the USDA in North Carolina is a money-making machine where it should be a private market money-making machine but when you have government competing for the same money as a local ADC trapper who do you think is gonna win most of the time the government is who set those regulations in place for the government agencies to compete in the marketplace for private money the people that we vote for that's all I'm gonna say about that one but if you're in North Carolina I would call these senators and tell them not to do it you know uh, don't be a, don't be a butthead with them about it they'll just hang up uh, explain why you need to do that how it's helping people because you can you can catch more beaver and fish ponds and, and whatever you're gonna say be very respectful be very pointed don't draw it out don't you know threaten to you know go burn the buildings down or nothing like that and a, a reasonable person would listen to a reasonable person and if enough people put enough doubt in the senator's mind where the, they're going to know that someone's going to remember it may do you some good there and uh, I don't think this is something that out of state's going to have any effect whatsoever but you could contact the North Carolina Trapping Association and see if there's something that we could do for that now the other thing I'm going to talk about is uh, I get this from a friend of mine in Ohio and it, it's 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 gun America news and reviews and it's ASA shoot showcases new silences and legislative victories and basically the article if you go there and you and you put in the ASA shooting showcases new silencers you'll come up with this article and it, it's really cool and uh, but what's more important about this for me as a trapper you want to talk about a country that it's backwards in its gun laws to no end. If you go hunting in Austria and a lot of places in Europe, you don't go out in the woods without a silenced rifle. And it makes sense to have a silenced rifle. A silenced rifle has a very big bang when you pull the trigger. And I can tell you from being a combat veteran, my hearing sucks bad. And and it's from thousands and thousands of rounds and artillery and helicopters and C-131s and all kind of stuff like that that's extremely loud. And, and I, my, my hearing is terrible because of that. So if you're out shooting or hunting in, in a lot of these other countries that are, are more anti-gun than we are, they, <coughs> they've at least seen the, the light that if someone's going to have a gun... They need to have a silencer on it. Their health care is cheaper because they don't have hearing problems. If, if you're shooting a hog in Germany and you have a silencer on the, on the weapon, it doesn't spook the other neighbors around there. Like where I live here in Tennessee, on every Saturday and Sunday, in any direction over time of day, I'll hear 15 or 20 gunshots, and I kind of like it. But in a country that's not that way, where if people when people move to Dunlap from other places of the country, it really freaks them out. So just having that on there, and think about it from the point of a trapper. If you have a silenced weapon, 
and is in your say this is something as simple as raccoon trapping you catch 100 raccoons a day and you're using a 22 on them is, is even though a 22 doesn't seem loud you put it next to a culvert it's almost like a 30-06 just for your own benefit of your hearing loss a silencer would make a it'd be a great tool to have on a trap line it would also make you a lot more incognito when you're out shooting animals on a trap line it would solve a lot of issues and it's a cool thing but in america somehow we think a silencer is just something that an assassin uses if you go around the world though they're on almost all the they're or i say on almost all of them but on the hunting weapons they're on there just because it makes so much sense and apparently since asa's been doing this type of work um there's been 20 pro suppressor laws and regulations have been enacted. 12 states have legalized suppressor hunting. That is awesome. And I bet you, if you look at those laws, that'll also translate over to trapping. And uh, getting these, getting a suppressor in a state that if it's legal, like I doubt you're going to be able to get it in New York or something like that. But it's not that much. It's a you, you have to get a stamp. It's about three hundred dollars. You're gonna they're gonna tell you it's gonna be four to six months. It's really gonna be about a year. You just play the waiting game. You gotta buy the gun, the silencer, or at least the silencer from from a store or from a manufacturer, and you pay the money up front. But you don't get the silencer until your step comes back. So it's it's kind of aggravating in that way. But if you can legally use one your trapping would be so much sweeter it, it really would i mean a silence 22 with a good with a good suppressor on there sounds like a bb gun over 20 years of pulling a trigger on a 22 you're going to have a tremendous amount of hearing loss and think of all the issues if you're if you're somewhere on the edge of someone's property and you shoot a coyote with a regular 22 that can be heard for a half a mile off if somebody's nosy or doesn't want or thinking you're trespassing this that and the other they call the law the game wardens they come over huffing and puffing and now you got to explain what you're doing wouldn't it be easier just to go about your business and nobody knows you're there suppressors i have a feeling are going to become way more common in america than, than we think and it's it's more of just uh the illusion that the media has with weapons with suppressors they just make more sense period you know it, it's a really cool deal and not even the suppressors using subsonic ammo so they're super super quiet but he, I've, I've been out with a friend of mine in arizona and his ar set up with a suppressor where he goes calling and he didn't have to have ear protection and you can shoot it all day long and your ears aren't ringing so, I mean, that, that that's just a cool thing. And it's not disturbing so much out there when you're out there doing it. And there's a lot of cool things. And if you had, if you're a beaver guy, because we talked about shooting beaver last, last week, if you had a suppressed rifle, something like a, a 300 Whisper, and you had a night vision scope, you could build a whole business based off of just shooting beaver. Now, how cool is that? Now, you tell me what grown-up American male wouldn't enjoy doing that for a living. And if you get tired of doing it, I, I, I know of a guy that's made a, a full-time big-dollar business off doing this in a southern state, and he's got two or three of these, and he basically pays these guys to go shoot beaver by beer. They can't drink till the job's over with. They think it's the coolest thing in the world. 
They don't have to buy the equipment. He gets paid from the landowner. They get to play with the toys and they get to drink beer and brag about the shots when it's all said and done. Great business plan. But the silencers are, are, are coming and if you can legally use them, you need to look into them. And the way all the information today is analog and, and categoried and, and sitting there, if you have a gun, the government knows it. And if you have a silencer, it's not going to make any difference. They're going to know it anyway. So, but if you do get one of these things, if you do get a, a suppressor on a 22 or something for trapping or beaver shooting or calling, make sure you understand the laws. Like me being in Tennessee, if I wanted to take it into Georgia, I would have to let Georgia know. Because if I get caught with a suppressor from Tennessee in Georgia, now you get in trouble. Now, if you have a business plan where you let your buddy shoot it, now you're, you're getting into a little bit of gray air because that silencer is registered to you to be under your control. You can't sell it. You can't transfer it. You can't do anything. The other person's got to go through the whole process that you went through. So there are some some kind of drawbacks to, to going with that. And, and, and Lord help if you ever got caught in New Jersey or Maryland or something with one as crazy as they are with their gun laws. So even traveling, sometimes that may cause an issue. But if you could legally use one in Iowa and you're you know you're you're really racking up raccoons and beaver on the side of the road oh dude it'd be sweet now i want to talk about something that's going to be uh so much time i got left okay i want to talk about the the gateway drug to predator control and i'm probably going to talk about this a little bit more down the road a little bit the coon market is down everybody knows it there's a fur market of it is whatever there's two ways to look at raccoon. One is the fur and the other one is getting paid to take them out. And when you're talking with landowners that put out feed guys, you have a way in on their property way above coyotes and bobcats and fox. Way above it. And actually way above beaver. And I was doing a, a job down in Texas with a I don't know what you'd call him. I mean, probably a billionaire. And we're sitting there and we're discussing terms and this, that, and the other. And the 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 coyote was an issue to him, even though he had lost several hundred thousand dollars a deer to coyotes. But he couldn't wrap his head around. And landowners, when you're dealing with business owners, look at everything is in, 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 in math. They look at it in return on value of the money. They, they, they have to be able to figure out some way to know what that money's doing for them or it drives them crazy. Or they wouldn't be in the position they have to have these type ranches anyway. So... The guy could not wrap his head around spending money on coyotes and bobcats because he didn't know exactly how many bobcats and coyotes he had. And he couldn't put on a spreadsheet exactly how many deer were getting killed by coyotes and bobcats. Now, from mine and your point of view, if you're sitting there and you're going to pay a trapper 10 grand to go down there and trap, 
and he saves one deer that's worth it, the the semen straws off that deer are worth a hundred thousand dollars. It makes perfectly good sense to pay the ten thousand dollars. And if the trapper saves two deer, he's way ahead. Three deer is even more ahead. But that's not the way business owners look at it. But raccoons, that's a totally different story. You still have to sell yourself to them. And once you get in and you prove your worth to these people, they want you to stay there because you're making them money. So if you're, if you're looking to get into the predator control, I would advise... And it's not as sexy and it doesn't look as good on Facebook and stuff like that. I would really market yourself as the raccoon guy over the coyote guy. Looking back over my career, I would have been much better off having crews of people in Texas running around setting Freedom Brand Dog Booth traps or cages or snares or whatever or 220s in the trails whatever where i could teach them and i could i could if i would have wanted to when i was younger and smart enough when i was younger to understand this i could have probably had 15 or 20 crews running around all over texas making money hand over fist or i could at least scale that down to the point where i could have went down and made way more money on the raccoons than I could on the coyotes and the bobcats because I could be getting a bounty for them plus the fur plus the meat in Texas and then I could also wiggle my way into coyotes and bobcats because once you're there that's the biggest the biggest kick if someone's putting out so much feed a month on these ranches they know exactly how much that is some of the ranches I've been on spend seventy thousand dollars a quarter on high protein feed and then they have I don't know how much because I've never seen the numbers on it they'll have out a hundred quail feeders that's got millet and stuff in it so to fill those feeders up every week you can you can probably say they're spending somewhere on the on the bottom edge side of some of these ranches two hundred thousand dollars a year on feed because you cannot put that many deer quail and turkey in that small of an area without feeding them and they're wanting that mass amount and that quality so they can charge for it. So they've got to pay for feed. Now, when, when their guys come back and tell them, you know, there's 12 raccoons hanging off a feeder when they pull up or they, they put a trail cam out there and they got a whole block party of raccoons eating their feed, they can see now because it's a way to physically look at it and see those raccoons are costing me money. Now, from a trapper's point of view, now you've got a way that you can go, okay, raccoons are going to eat so much feed, which is about two pounds a day for a full, especially in South Texas, those big, big raccoons they've got down there. Two pounds of feed, you got, if you got five coons on each feeder, you got 150 feeders, you work up the math, how much does the protein cost? Okay, that's this much protein, that's what these animals, I can save you X amount of money and it's going to cost you this amount of money. So you're going to be X amount of money ahead by hiring me to do this. Now you're talking in a realm for a business person that they understand. Because when you start talking about saving deer from bobcats and coyotes in Texas, 
it's it's there's no way to put that in any type of a formula or spreadsheet so the guy gets kind of uh nervous because he doesn't know i mean you may go down there and catch 100 coyotes off this property but did that really save him any money he doesn't know he thinks it does from a trapper's point of view you know it is but there's no way to do it but if, he, if you get on by showing him you can save him that much money the, the interesting thing happens when they go through the books and all these ranches, they, have, they normally have a 10-day block where the ranch managers and the deer breeders and the, everybody down to the, the fence keeper uppers, they go in and out of these meetings and the boss and, the, and everybody sitting there through the whole thing and they go over every single penny on one of these ranches. They're looking at fuel. Oh my goodness, we spent, you know, $67,000 in diesel. We've got to figure a way to knock that down 10%. How are we going to do it? And they hammer over that. And that's the way that businesses work. Well, when they get to the feed, and if they're spending $200,000 on feed last year, and this year they spent $137,000 on feed, but the feeder stayed full for the deer to eat. What is that? I should have used a round number. Uh, 37, so that'd be 60, $63,000 that now has been saved. And say, you're getting paid 10 grand to trap Coon off his property. 10 grand for $63,000 saving that means that man just put $53,000 in his pocket or into the ranch's coffers. That's very seeable and it's very doable from a, from a sales pitch point of view. And I've never had one take me up on it. And I've used this technique two or three times to get their attention. If they won't bite on the coon, but you can see they're struggling and you gotta, no matter how professional you think you are as a trapper or how great you are as a trapper or how well known you are as a trapper, to them, you're the same thing as a guy that fixes fence, grades the roads, the maids that change the sheets. You're there to do a service and nothing else. We put the, the emotion and the, and the personal on our trapping. They do not. And so if you can see him kind of going down the road on the trap, and I've made this offer several times. I've never had anybody take me up on it, but most of the time I'll get the job because it'll prove a point to the person. I'll tell them, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will trap this year for free with the exception of I get to see the last three years feed bill what you paid for it in the volume. And then after this year, we will sit down together and go over those numbers. And whatever the difference is, you write me a check for half. So if I save you $50,000, you're going to write me a check for $25,000 and we'll, we'll draw this up in an agreement. But you get no risk to do it. So if I don't if I don't save you any money, I work for free. If I save you when I know I'm going to save you, 
I get to have a pretty good payday, but you're still going to be saving a lot of money. And if you do that, and not in a smart aleck way, but just as a business way, as a different way to pay for your service, that person is going to sit back and go, well, if I do that, I'm going to be paying 25, 30, 40 grand to this guy's trap raccoon. I'm not going to pay somebody a full-time salary to be down here for three weeks. It doesn't make sense. But he's willing to do it for free because he thinks or knows there's going to be a payday at the end of it that's really big. And that gets his wheels turning. Now all of a sudden now, whatever your price is of however you do it, either by the coon or by the week or by the hour or whatever it is, that's going to seem like a lot better deal to him, which is what you wanted in the first place. Because I can tell you, if you did start, if you did get someone to do the, the you get half model, you better be very clear on, on what the numbers are. It's got to be a very base and simple thing. It's not labor of guys. It's not this, that, and the other. It's pure cost of feed and pure savings of feed cost per volume. Not by what it is today, but the volume that you are... Because prices go up and down. You've got to come up with some type of formula. I've never had anybody do it yet. I wish they would. Because I've been on a ranch where they've let me know that they've saved $70,000 in feed cost. And guys, we weren't even really trapping for raccoons. The accidental coon catch saved them $70,000. Now, if you could go to Texas or places that, are, that have high fences or game ranches or quail plantations or wherever it is, get in the ground level on the coons then you can work yourself up to the coyotes and the bobcats which is what most people want to trap anyway and i totally understand that but it's a ground floor way to get in that most people either through pride or ego won't go and if you if your goal is to make some really serious bank while you're out trapping you need to put your ego and stuff on a shelf you have a skill, you have a service, they have a need, you need to fill that need. Then you can worry about sexiness later once you build up a, a uh, relationship with that person. Because once he figures out you're not going to tear up his roads, you're not going to poach his animals, and you're not going to try to rape his maids and, and drink all his alcohol and you know leave the doors open or the air conditioners running all day and you're not a problem and you're not a whiner and you're not complaining and you're not just basically a pain in the butt, then you can start talking about different services and different ways to go about things. And, to, and I tell you, in that world, if you save them money, they're going to want to brag about it to their buddies. And then all of a sudden now, you've got new clients that you didn't have to go out and spend money for. But the raccoons is definitely, especially on game ranches, if they feed, is the gateway drug to get in there. And then you get to, to, to play with the, the what you want to do later. You know, dude, I'm, I'm driving by these feeders and I'm seeing this, you know, couch hat right in the sign. Do you care if I put some traps out? No. As long as you're, you keep up your end of the deal on the coons, they're not going to care for the most part. Or, you know, I see a lot of raccoon trails coming in out from under your fence. I need to put snares in there. 
Okay, knock yourself out. Well, now you're into coyote and bobcat catching with very little energy. But the raccoons, to me, is a much better business plan that's not being taken advantage of that I've seen in Texas or anywhere else. With my lure business the way it is now, I'm not interested in going down there and trying to start something like that now. I have no interest in whatsoever. But I guarantee there's people that's listening to this right now that's trying to figure out how to get down there. And if they'll take this and polish their self up <coughs> and their sales pitch up, they can be rocking and rolling on this thing pretty easy. Because if, if, you, if you can go into a place and catch raccoons and get paid decent money and then the cats are still worth decent money and then the, the cow glands are worth decent money and the skulls are worth decent money you got a place to stay and then you know maybe even you work out some type of deal where your fuel is part of the the, the predators you're catching or however you do it you, you can make some serious money very quick in places like that and you can be a professional as you do it. And I don't mean this professional you make your living at it. I'm talking about a professional service company to do that. And that's where I think a lot of the trappers get, uh, get their legs taken out from under them. They go to a ranch looking at it as a vacation. And if the guy that owns the ranch or manages the ranch thinks you're going there as a vacation, you're not going to get any respect and you're probably not going to get to come back and it, it it doesn't go forward the way that you want it to go because you're you're somebody down there that they're putting up with to get rid of a problem but they know you're not a professional service a professional service has a totally different level of respect when you're negotiating with with somebody like that if you don't believe me let let a local ADC guy pitch something to a, a city or state or an airport, then watch the USDA come in behind them with their scientists and their six inches of paperwork. The professional service is almost always going to win, even if the service in the end is not even a tenth of what the private guy would do. But it's the impression of being a, a professional service when, when you go about doing stuff like that. So I just wanted to bring that up because it is a... Uh, I think it's a very underutilized part of the trapping industry where we're so focused on fur and numbers and, and all that type stuff that the way the world's going, you'd be better off not thinking of it as purely as an ADC thing, but think of yourself as a professional service type thing to people that definitely have a problem and they're trying to figure out how to get around it and you can save them enough money where they will fight to keep you there. And that's pretty cool. And I want to close <clears throat> today's show on something that I just found so, so interesting. Uh, a lot of y'all know that I'm taking a, a permaculture design course. And permaculture is not just growing food, guys. It's design. It doesn't really tell you how to grow anything. It's designing something. And I'm going to give you an example of, of what I saw on a pond, a fish pond, that was set up permaculture style on this course to a regular fish pond that you'll see on commercial fish ponds everywhere. 
but you'll see that design makes a big difference. And when you hear this story, don't think about it in terms of a fish pond. Think about this as your, your, uh, your vehicle, your tools, everything else. Uh, oh, before I get into this, I had a conversation from a guy that is a lineman that uh, he heard me when I was talking about having elbow problems when I used to use a lot of stakes and stuff like that. I did not know this, but they have uh, ground rod. If you are if you put in a telephone pole, you got to put a ground rod. Well, they're not out there with a sledge cramp. They got little, they've got like machines that are electric that's vehicle based and you got professional ones that are really expensive and you got more uh, lower end ones that still work very well but they don't have all the bells and whistles and they work and if you have an inverter on your car from the way I understand this thing works it's 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 almost like a, a power drill hammer type thing and if you're like you're putting in your wolf fangs your, your freedom brand wolf fangs and you, you put your driver over it you could take this tool and it's a ground rod uh, let me look at this email while I'm talking. Um, it is a, so you put it over the, the driver and it, and it, two feet, he said, is a joke because it will just go straight down and you won't have any energy involved. You won't be able to uh, walk off in the woods with it. There ain't no doubt about that. But it's, uh, one is a, uh, Milwaukee, DeWalt, Bosch makes them. Um, this is from, it looks like a big drill is what it looks like. But it's made to drive grounding rods. And if you Google that, if you're, if you're road trapping or you're trapping like most people do on the sides of roads or intersections, think of how cool this is. Because this is using products that may or may not be used for trapping. And yes, they're, you, know, you may spend five or $600 on this, Itemize that over the next 10 years and what your elbow's worth and what your energy's worth. So you get out, you know where your trap's gonna go, you set the, the big drill over the top of it, you do the trigger, it drives it in the ground for you, you put it back in the truck. If you're a state guy, I would if I wasn't into drags the way I'm into drags, I would definitely be into this. Just for, for the simple fact of how much energy and body wear and tear it'll save you. And it works off electricity. And any lineman you talk to will know exactly what these things are because apparently every telephone pole I've talked with him has got a grounding rod next to it. And they've got their truck and they've got their inverter. They just set it over the grounding rod and da 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 And it's four foot in the ground. Well, you're not even going that far. You're just two foot in the ground on a Freedom Brand Wolf thing. You pull that bad boy out. You didn't spend any energy whatsoever. It ain't coming out. I mean, that's just cool. Uh, using stuff like that is cool now if you design this into your system of the way you're trapping it gets really cool and you'll notice I'm using the word design a lot lately because it's really opened my mind up to a lot of different things and uh, but I'm gonna get back to this pond but think about the way your first shed is set up think about the way your vehicle set up your trapping system set up everything and when you hear how a permaculturist designs a fish pond, you'll see that there's a lot of thought and a lot of stackability and functions that go into something as simple as a crappie pond. Okay, what I saw 
was a pond that was two, two meters deep, six feet, flat on the bottom and kind of in a square shape, which is very common in a fish pond. On one, end, on one side of that, they dug it out deeper. They called it a deep. They put big rocks so it wouldn't uh, erode out and it made a chute about three foot across. And that was deeper than the six feet of the pond bottom. So when you drain the water, all the fish are ended up in a something the size of a hot tub. And you just scoop them out. And, and I've seen that before, okay? But you've got a trap inside of a, a pond, which is pretty cool because when the fish go in there, if you didn't want to, if you wanted to keep them live or sell them live, you could drop a screen in that chute fill the water back up and just dip out what you needed as you needed them to go. So you could grow them out in the other part. The other parts of the pond is they would put up screen netting that was small, too small for a big fish to eat a fry fish, but they could raise out the fry fish in the same pond as they did the big fish. So they had less energy usage that way. They would also grow mulberries for silkworms on the one edge of the pond and they would actually trim those trees to be out over the pond so they could go up when the silkworms are on there and shake the tree and feed the fish for free underneath that they had a a soldier fly bin which eats vegetation and stuff and all these little maggot larvas which people feed for chickens they will climb up a ramp and they built this tube so they climb up this ramp and they go through this tube straight into the water and feeds the fish so they got two ways to feed the fish. They got an easy way to get the fish. They can grow the fish in the same pond. And the, one of the coolest trap things I saw on here, because stuff like this just intrigues me as a trapper, you've all, everybody's seen, if you use a light at night, it attracts bugs. Well, they built this little raft and they, they stake it out kind of in, in the middle of the pond. And they had a, a solar powdery light on there that was about three inches off the water on the raft so the bugs come to the light and then off the same the same solar power during the day they ran a fan just a little fan like you see in uh we used to see them a lot in in uh, trucks and stuff when i was growing up they would they run off batteries and it's it's a pretty decent little fan and they would set that up on an angle where it would blow down past the light so the bugs would come to the light the fish could see the bugs really easy and most fish like to eat at night and the fan would blow the fish on the water and as soon as they would hit the water the fish would eat them so they had three ways of feeding the fish one using a trap basically with the light and the fan and solar to feed the fish they could and you could raise the fish and all this is going if you want to get crazy with it from thinking about design now think about your think about your your fur shed depending on where you're at if it gets really hot in the summer, you could grow vegetation on the side of it so it cools in the summer like I do on mine. And in the winter, the leaves fall off and it heats up from the sun a little bit and your heating bill's not as bad. Well, on the, the pond, one of the big issues is keeping the water moving. They had shade on one side from the trees and they put a greenhouse coming out over the pond a little bit on one side that would heat the water. Well, hot water and cold water go at different levels of the pond and they, they move even though there's no current. 
they could they could grow stuff in the greenhouse that they could sell they would set it out over like a dock where it would be on the water and they would circulate their pond water all at one time and there's several other things i'm not going into on, on the way they use the plants but every single part of a fish pond as simple as that is got more and more and more and more productive with less energy from the person that's going to eventually get the fish by design by design it wasn't i hope it works or this every before you just dig the pond you think about every single thing about it now if you think about your first shed how you bring the animals in how you're processing the animals how you get rid of the the uh, scraps and stuff like that um, if you if you were looking if you were into agriculture at all or you're into making money at all all of the scraps and stuff that people put out <clears throat> from their processed animals if you went to somewhere like a tree trimming company and you had a small tractor or something like you wouldn't want to be doing this by hand but if you had a small tractor or something like that or you could rent a um, a bobcat you know three or four days out of whack and then go go send it back if you're catching a lot of animals and you got free tree tr uh, leaf trimmings from a, a company and then somewhere else there's a sawmill it's got all this type of sawmill stuff and you had some manure and you mixed all of your animals into that pile of carbon with the manure which will act as a green agent you could make really really high quality compost high quality compost and you may think well there's not very much money in that have you seen what compost sells for at walmart in a 20 pound bag But that would just be one way, and that may not be your thing. But if you design, if you think about what you're doing from a design point of view, is there a way, you know, like I've seen, and I wish I'd have bought them, there was a, a company that went out of business here, and they had these roller things like I've seen at UPS. They're, uh, it's aluminum track that's got uh, pipes running through it with bigger pipes, almost like bearings. If I would have had, if I would have thought about stuff through design the way that I'm trying to think about things now, I would have bought one or two of them things. Think about how much simpler it would be as a trapper if you had that thing on some type of a base that that you could slide over in front of your door, and where your truck is at, you could put these great big heavy beaver and everything on, and just roll them down inside of your first shop instead of carrying them by hand, trip after trip after trip after trip after trip. Is there a way to design uh, a better hanging system? Uh, how, to, how to use different scraps where you're making as much money as you can off of every single product that, that you have? I guarantee you, if you were to look at your fur shed from a designer's point of view and think about from the time you stop your truck, wherever that is, or your four-wheeler with the animals, go through the whole process and then how to how to do cleanup on the all coming back outside, you could come up with some really, really cool things that you could do. Like just those rollers, if I'd have bought them, because if I remember they were a hundred dollars for 
I don't know, it was like a 12 foot section. If I'd have bought two, it'd have been $200 over the course of 20 years. Well, that's probably about 10 years ago. Over the course of 10 years, if, if I set that up in the wintertime and I could just pile them things up on the, pile the beaver up on those rolling systems and roll them into my first shop, dude, now you're rocking and rolling. And then if you were gonna, if you had them on the other side going out to a compost pile or something like that, where now you're selling something that most people are throwing away in a ditch, now you're generating money on that side. You could roll them right out a, a, a hole in the other side of the wall, you know, to the, to the bed of a truck or a four-wheeler or a, some type of little trailer or something like that and take them where you need them to go. But you wouldn't be spending all this time doing it in between there where your tools are at inside of there, where the, the bench is at as far as the airflow and the light and everything like that. If you design something as simple as a fur shed up like a permaculturist would design a fish pond, it's really, really cool. And from another point of business from somebody, if somebody were to really, really get crazy on designing a fur shed where it was so efficient, and so easy and so cool of what they did, they could easily write an ebook or a DVD or something like that where they could generate even more money off of that than they were on just the fur and just keep stacking the functions, stacking those functions on top of each other. And when I'm watching this fish pond and, and the permaculture thing all together, it's because the more that a person designs whatever it is that they're doing, the easier their life is getting and the more enjoyable it is. And then you can burn that energy on something that's really cool. Well, that's the end of the show this week. And I just want to tell everybody out there, as you're out there doing whatever it is you're doing in the spring, just be a beast no matter what. Have a good time out there and do some epic stuff, guys.